This is an MPB Think Radio podcast. To hear previous shows, visit mpbonline.org or download the MPB Public Radio app to listen on your iPhone or Android phone on demand. Southern Remedy Healthy and Fit provides information on how you can lead a healthy lifestyle. I'm the host, Josie Bidwell. Search for and subscribe to Southern Remedy on any podcasting app to not miss any episode. From MPB Think Radio, this is Money Talks. I'm Kevin Farrell here with Dr. Nancy Lotridge-Anderson, President of New Perspectives, and Ryder Taft, Portfolio Manager at New Perspectives. They're out this week, so we won't take your phone calls. Instead, we're re-airing some recent conversations from the show. In this first part, we'll talk about financial acronyms and take a couple of listener phone calls. Kat, you're on the air with us. Go ahead. Good morning, y'all. Morning. um, my, My question is in relation to... Um, contract work versus being a W-2 employee. Um, I'm looking to supplement my income, and I'm considering um, doing contract work. But I was wondering, what are the tax benefits from being um, a contract worker? Does, does that make sense? Yes, absolutely. So, uh, contract so contract work is where you are just kind of paid a check for your work for what may be a project based, maybe it is somewhat hourly based uh, from from a worker, but you're not really considered an employee. Employees get a W two. The W two takes care of tax withholding. There could be other benefits, for instance, four hundred one k or uh, health insurance through being a W two employee. But a contract worker uh, is generally responsible for doing all of those on their own. One of the main tax benefits uh, there's so there's two big ones I want to point out is one you can deduct you can generally deduct some expenses that a normal worker might not be able to do. if I buy some pens for work for instance I can't deduct that I'm, I would hope that my employer you know buys pens office supplies computers and everything I need but if you're a contract worker then you're responsible for those expenses and very often you can deduct those I always speak with a CPA or a tax professional about that but when you're a contract worker that makes it very important that you keep up with your expenses that are work related uh, you keep up with mileage that is work related if your uh, job requires you to drive or something like that there and again, speak with a CPA about what specifically can be deducted and what sort of things you might want to be keeping track of. The other benefit I would say, that's maybe a benefit, maybe not, uh, is that you have you are able to do a SEP IRA, which is just one of the more simple and generous amounts that you can put away in a retirement savings account. I say this may or may not be a benefit just because the amount of income you earn is going to uh, be a, the, the factor into how much you can put in. Uh, but if you're doing a fairly good amount of contract work and you don't have a lot of other deductions, this is going to be what gives you uh, your best deduction. And it could ultimately be even more generous than what some people may have in their workplace plan, uh, just depending on what their plan is, if they have one or not. But it, it's it's the possibility for a much more generous uh, retirement savings plan. Anything else you would add, Nancy? Yeah, the downside of being a contract person, it's like your own business that you're running here. And so that means you need to keep track of everything, just like Ryder said with your expenses. But the biggest downside is when you work for somebody else, they're going to take out the tax 
and then match the tax for FICA, for Social Security and Medicare, you're going to be responsible to do that yourself. And so Mm. once you do all of your books and you get to the end of the year and you show hopefully a positive net income on the bottom line there, then you're going to basically have to pay both sides of that yourself as part of your tax filing. So check with your CPA about what you need to keep track of and how that is going to function, but there will be extra filings that you'll have to do as a contract person. Good morning, David. You're on the air with us. Good morning. I just want to give a shout-out to Nancy and Ryder. Uh, me and my wife, Hi, Claire, David. have been using their services for over six years now. We couldn't be more pleased. They do such a great wow. job. And just wanted Thank to you. say hello this morning from Pensacola. Thanks for tuning in, David. Well, and I have to say that um, his wife is one of the uh, Uber hosts I don't know if I should say Uber. She's one of the, the top hosts not, on Airbnb. Yeah. Uber is a different thing. <laughs> yeah, it's super. Right. It's super host. She's a super host. So, David, yeah. uh, do you live down there or are you all just visiting? Uh, we're natives of the area, and uh, my wife has a small Airbnb, and I'm retired with a little part-time gig. And uh, just discovered Nancy and Ryder listening to this radio station wow. traveling over to Mississippi, and that's how we – uh, found out about them and hooked up with them six years ago, I think, and we have been so pleased with the service they provide. They did not ask me to make this call. <laughs> oh, you're kind. No, we yes. did not. 8PR, what does that mean? APR stands for Annual Percentage Rate. So when you are shopping for a lender and you're trying to compare lenders, that's the number you want to look at. Now, for a lot of loans, it, there may not be much difference between what they advertise and that APR, but there usually is a big difference when you're looking at mortgages. The APR includes all the fees that you're going to incur that get wrapped into the loan. So, for instance, you may be only borrowing 100000 but you may end up borrowing somewhere around 106000 when you add in all of those fees, and that's how the APR is then calculated. Um, bankrate.com is a great website. I think we've mentioned it before on the program. You can go to that site. You can compare lenders. You plug in the type of loan you're looking for, where you live, and you will get a list of them. And again, you're going to look for that APR to find the one with the best rate. And that best rate that's quoted there is based on the top credit credit rating. So, Kevin, you would get that best rate. But if your credit ratings are a little bit lower, expect that number to be a little bit lower when you go through the process. I think a lot of people have heard FDIC, but what is it and what is their function? Yes, the Federal Deposit Insurance Corporation. So that is what's keeping your money in the bank safe, or they're really the the backstop, the insurance for if the bank fails. And I know it's not something we want to really be talking about, but it has happened a couple of times in a big way this year. We've talked about that a lot. They are what who steps in when the bank fails and says, okay, we are insuring your deposits up to they do a quarter million. That's actually pretty generous because they have a lot of ways of interpreting what counts as a separate account. And so you, generally speaking, you will see all banks will say FDIC insured. That's what that means. That is a federal uh, federal program that is backing them up. And they're also in charge of operating the bank uh, once it fails. Like I said, they have a goal of reopening banks uh, within one to two business days after failure open business as usual. Um, did they come about as a result of the Great Depression? Do we... 
I believe that is so because uh, in the Great Depression, banks were failing and so people were worried. And so they started taking all of their money out of the banks, which, of course, just caused them to fail faster. It's a bank run. And so the idea was if you give people confidence that even if the bank fails, their money will be there, maybe they won't be in such a hurry to withdraw their money. I believe that was part of the Glass-Steagall Act in 1933. Yes, that's correct. ARM, that's a little more common. That is very common. Adjustable rate mortgage. Oh, you can just call that an arm. An arm, yeah. Yeah. So uh, for a long period of time, we were telling everybody, don't do arms. Don't do adjustable rate mortgages because we had very low fixed rates. Uh, We had a little bit of a contest in the office when we get phone calls from clients telling us what low rate they locked into, some below three over the last decade. Um, Those have gone away, and so we have seen a period of spiking interest rates, and so we've seen the rise of adjustable rate mortgages. Now, what you're going to find with adjustable rate mortgages right now is um, you know, they may be pretty close to what the existing uh, mortgage rate on a fixed rate is offering, but you may have some ability for it to be lowered in the future. So look at the fine print. Sometimes they adjust every year. Sometimes they adjust after five years or seven years. Each of those contracts will be different. Look at how long that rate is fixed, how often it adjusts how it is adjusted, Mm -hmm. what they use to adjust it. Because what a lot of people are doing right now is they're purchasing homes with the idea, okay, I've got a pretty high mortgage rate right now, but I'm going to refinance in the future. So adjustable rate mortgage is basically doing that for you by hopefully seeing those rates go in the opposite direction when they come down. Ryder, the next one on the list is a familiar one uh, that we've talked about on the show. Remind us, though, what a HELOC is, H-E-L-O-C. A HELOC is a home equity line of credit. So we were just talking about the uh, some some other mortgage terms. A HELOC is kind of on top of a mortgage typically, or maybe if you don't have a mortgage at all, you can get a line of credit from a bank, and it is secured by your home. So it is generally considered just a second lien mortgage if you already have a first lien mortgage. Uh, those are Those can be fixed rate, those can be fixed fee, those can be floating rate or adjustable rate, uh, all sorts of different rules there. Uh, They're a lot more custom to the bank and to the borrower. But sometimes a good way to just get secure access to money, even if you're not using it immediately, maybe say, oh, I know I'm going to have some some needs in the coming years. So I'll go ahead and secure a line of credit from a bank to help fund those. And um, there's a difference between a home equity line of credit and just a basic home equity loan. So if you have a line mm-hmm. of credit, you're going to have a limit that the banker has given you. Okay, I'll, I'll give you up to 75000 right. And you draw on that as you need it, and you're only charged interest for what you have borrowed uh, against that line of credit. With a home equity line, it's, okay, here's the 100000 all up front. And you're going to be making payments back to me, so that full loan is coming at you all at once. So figure out which is uh, what you need in your particular situation. Um, I got a HELOC a couple of years ago, I think it is. Is there usually a time limit to it? So in other words, if I don't use it in X amount of time, I would have to pretty much apply for another one. Am I, am I correct? Yes. 
And and again, so that's another one of those terms of the HELOC that, again, it's going to be custom to what you have arranged with the bank. But they typically, because they'll either maybe establish a fee or because it's based on not only your home equity, but maybe also your credit uh, credit score yourself. We were just talking about those. But because it's based on factors like that, they, they do want to revisit that from time to time and see, oh, should we offer Kevin more money? Should we offer him less money? Should we raise the rate, lower the rate? Uh, or, of course, it could also just depend on what they're offering at that time. And interest on a home equity loan or a home equity line of credit, like mortgage interest, is also tax deductible, which may be important to you if you do itemize. Yes. The, the Check with your CPA with the details because I believe a change with the Tax Cuts and Jobs Act in 2018, was it? Uh, there are some requirements, some record-keeping requirements for what sort of expenses you use it for would be tax-deductible. So in this next segment of the show, our guest, attorney Richard Courtney, helps answer listener questions about estate planning. So let's go to Byram. Kevin has called in first. Go ahead, Kevin. You're on the air with us. Good morning. How you doing? Good. What do you have for us? Yeah, I've got a question. Uh, I'm a truck driver. 42 years old. I called it before. Mm-hmm. And uh, I was wondering if I I have a pretty good amount of money saved up, house paid off. And I want to leave uh, 30% of my money, my wheel. I want to, the wheel I do, 30% to my mom, 30% to my wife, and 40% to the St. Jude Children Foundation in Memphis, Tennessee. Is that a good thing to do? I, I hang up and listen up there. Well, yes, it's a good thing to do if that is what your desires are. I mean, to favor your mom or favor your wife and that charity, that's, you know, certainly if that's where you want your money to go, that's a good way to have it is through a will where that can be carried out at your death. Um, and so, yeah, if if that's who you want to have it, that's fine. Just now, one thing you might want to think about if you didn't already in your will is what if your mom passes away before you do? or your wife passes away before you do, does your will say where that share is going to go then? Because if it doesn't, then there could be some confusion about who is going to get that portion of your estate. Wills need to be as clear as possible about here's where my assets will go at my death. That's all a will is. It's written instructions about who gets my stuff when I die. That's it. That's a will. But it needs to say, if this person passes away before I do, where does that share go? So I don't know what you will say. Yeah, go ahead. Oh, Rick, one of the things that I hear from clients all the time, and they talk about uh, putting a charity in their wills, sometimes they want to put in a certain dollar amount. And, you know, we don't know how much you're going to have when Mm -hmm. you leave this earth. And so that becomes an issue of how do you handle that? so that you make sure that your primary beneficiaries are taken care of first, and then it can flow through. How do you do that? Well, percentages is a way to do that, Nancy, um, saying I want to leave this percent of what I have. Because, again, like you say, I don't know how much money I will have at my death. As we are living longer, we're counseling with more and more clients who are using their resources up more by the Mm -hmm. time of their death Mm -hmm. than they might have thought. So. Uh, having percentages. Another thing is, in a will, you can leave specific bequests or specific gifts to someone, and then the rest is called the residuary, 
the remainder of your assets go. If you leave $50,000 to St. Jude's, for instance, as a specific bequest, it does not matter how much other assets you have. That is going to go first. Those specific Uh, bequests are going to go first, and then the rest is split up. As you say, the remainder of my estate goes to these people. So if I've spent my estate down to $100,000 and I want my wife, my my mother, and St. Jude's to all get a third, if I left St. Jude $50,000 as a specific, they're going to get the first fifty, and the other fifty get split between my, my, my mom and my wife. So knowing how those things go through a will is important, too. So one thing I like about Kevin's call is Kevin, is this your alter ego down there who called in? Uh, one thing I like about his call is, one, he's done a good job saving. He's paid off his house. He's done a lot well financially. And he's also been thinking about his estate plan, clearly has a good idea what's important to him, where he wants his money to go. One thing I think is important to consider as well, especially he's put his mother on there, is what – does the support you want to give those specific people look like? So, for instance, he may be an only child. And we're kind of speculating about Kevin, but talking about general situations, if you're maybe an only child and you're like, well, I'm the one who's going to have to take care of my mother. Of course, I'm a truck driver. I'm on the road. I want to have a will. So that's in place if I die because you know, it's it's a dangerous profession. But Think about what that care looks like. And so in the future, when maybe you're not driving as much, maybe you're in a much better, uh, you're just at home more and you're able to actually physically take care of her. Do you still want to have that 30% or are you just committing, you know, for yourself to give her the support, uh, help pay for a nursing home, whatever your mother may need Uh, with your wife? uh, If you have children, that's an important consideration. Uh, If she dies, do the children get it? Are they just kind of neglected in the world? What happens there? What does the support that she is getting look like? And then you talked about the specific gifts. Is there some level of giving you're trying to hit at St. Jude to get your name on something uh, or or give to a specific – uh, a specific uh, project that they have, and that happens a lot. Maybe, maybe you give to your to your high school or your college, and you want to do a, a scholarship or something. While saying, "Okay, forty percent of my money will do it," that'll be great. Again, if it ends up lower, and it's really important for you to uh, support that specific project, you might want to do a specific dollar amount. But of course, mm-hmm. if it ends up way higher, if you end up with ten times the money you thought you were going to have, <laughs> yeah. well, maybe it's not as important to give them so much. So, making sure that not only he's done the work of figuring out. What is important? What do I want to see? Where do I want my money to go when I die? But figuring out exactly what that really looks like, regardless of what his estate looks like, is important as well. This brings up this idea, too, that a will is not set in stone. And so um, life changes. And it is important once you do that will, you regularly need to go back and review that. And Rick, you may have some guidelines for how often you should do that. But certainly, um, if you've lived a long time, then what you, how you want to handle your money when, it, when you do pass could change through that time. And so you can change your will. Yeah, that's right. And uh, I tell clients you should 
check back on your will, look back at it every couple of years, and particularly when things happen with those people that are involved in it. Is there a death? Is there a divorce? Is there a disability? Those things change relationships and could change who you want to be the executor of the will. It could change how you leave assets. Ryder, you mentioned the word nursing home a minute ago, so I'm going to switch over and put my elder law cap on. If I want to leave money to my mom or even to my spouse, if my mom has some dementia beginning or some incapacitating condition that's begun to happen, do I leave her 30% of my estate outright? Well, if I do, yeah, that's her, her money. Check, right? Yeah, that's, they, she just gets a chunk of money at my death. Guess what? That's countable assets by Medicaid. So she can't get Medicaid care in a nursing home until she has less than $4,000. So she's got to spend all that money down. But in my will, I can say at my death, I leave 30% or whatever amount to, to a trust for the benefit of my mom or my spouse. We're counseling a lot of clients, couples where one already has a, you know, a dementia condition or some other disabling condition. I leave it to a trust for that person. That way it's not counted as their money. It's there for their benefit to be managed by someone else. But then they could get Medicaid help to pay for other nursing home care, that sort of thing. So trusts in a will can be very helpful. And and I know that that uh, sort of trust is a a kind of has some specific requirements we might have time for later. But what you're saying, especially if you in your will are are including folks, well, your age or older, potentially, it's not just your estate planning that matters here. It's also their estate plan. What does their estate look like? Is giving them a large gift going to mean they don't qualify for uh, some public benefits, perhaps, uh, or is that what what is what change is that going to bring about in their life that you need to consider when you're making your will? I have identical. I'm sorry, twi- we're not making it simpler for our friend <laughs> Kevin, are we? We're just giving scenarios. I have identical twin daughters. They're 44 years old. One is married, has boys in high school. The other daughter has cerebral palsy. She's a wheelchair user and lives with us at home. She has some Medicaid benefits. We do not treat them equally in the will. We can leave assets outright to our non-disabled daughter. We leave assets. And, and let's be clear. He loves his daughters equally. <laughs> That's okay, right. That's yeah. like, anybody listening, <laughs> anybody, if you do, I, I don't want to hear it. He loves them equally. <laughs> but yeah, but the way we deal with the assets for each one of them is different. So, Hunter, you're on the air with us now. Go ahead, please. Hey, good morning. I have uh, four young children and minimal assets. So they're going to be quite some time before they are 21 years old. And uh, I was wondering, is there a minimum amount needed to set up a trust fund? And part B to that question, do I need to set up an individual trust fund for each of the four children? Or can there be one to take care of them as a group until they're 21? From the lawyer's perspective on estate planning, uh, not the investment advisor's <laughs> perspective on how you fund four children, congratulations and uh, good luck. Um, no, there's there's no minimum age before you'd set up a trust. You can have a will that says, at my death, whatever I have goes into trust for these children, equal shares, whatever you want to do. And uh, that trust would be there as the holding vessel for money. Then if you have a life insurance policy, if you're able to get a small or medium-sized life insurance policy pretty soon, that could fund those trusts after your death. So the will would set the trusts up. They become like empty buckets for each of your children. And then the money that you fund into them through your will, your estate assets, or life insurance could go into that. 
But you're just setting up the structure for that in the will, and it doesn't matter if they're still young. If you don't have the assets yet, you can set that up. I, I think that's a, a, a good point you made about life insurance. You know, you are a, a, a father of four young children, uh, even if you're not the primary breadwinner or the only breadwinner, it's still going to be important to have some sort of life insurance coverage. You mentioned you know, minimal assets. So if you died today, there would be very little to, to raise them uh, through uh, through childhood and through college and, and what have you. So life insurance would be a very good idea. And then another thing that you had mentioned earlier, Rick, is designating a guardian or knowing who's going to be in charge of that money because you, you don't want it to end up in the hands of, of the court if, if, if there is somebody, especially if there's somebody maybe not related to you who you think would be the best person. And this can happen, obviously, if you have a spouse, if the, the, the mother of the children might be a great idea uh, in situations where you have maybe blended families or or the your spouse is predeceased you then you you're going to want to make sure that is taken care of and you want to anticipate you want your your will and your designation of that guardian to anticipate the fact that that other person may not be there and and so that those are some things that you might want to make sure those are some things to think about uh certainly regardless of the structure that you end up putting your money in but but that Doing a trust in the will uh, makes a lot of sense in that case. We aren't in studio this morning, and we aren't taking phone calls. Instead, we're re-airing some recent discussions we've had on the show. And in the next part, we answer questions about credit reports. John's calling in from Jackson today. Good morning, John. You're on the air, so go ahead. Good morning to all. I have a question about my daughters who just finished college, and they plan on buying a house in maybe 10 years. Um, then starting out, um, one of them wound up with an eviction because of this thing that went on, you know, the rent assistance, but the landlord has to sign these papers and submit them, but he didn't refuse to because he didn't want low-income people living there. And I was wondering how that one eviction from their apartment would affect their credit score, and is there anything that I can tell them to that help would help them. Thank you, and I'll listen to you on the video. Yeah, I think the first thing to do would be to check her credit report with all three bureaus at annualcreditreport.com and see if that is indeed on the record. Uh, Those sort of things do not always pop up. I know that some landlords do use credit reports to check to see kind of the credit worthiness. Oh, is this going to be a good regular paying tenant? But it is much more rare for a uh, lend, uh, for a ten, uh, for a landlord, excuse me, to actually be reporting uh, late payments or evictions or things like that. So that may not be on there. That would be more of a thing that comes up in just like a background check, which is not really used in mortgage qualification. So that may not have an impact. Um, she could. There's a lot of ways to dispute information uh, because if if she feels that it just – say it is on the report or just more generally if there is a negative comment, a negative action on the report that anyone does want to dispute, you can dispute that both with the credit reporting bureau 
and with uh, the furnisher, whoever whoever supplied that information to the credit reporting bureau. So those are the two ways that uh, something could be disputed and taken off. Additionally, things that are quite old and have kind of settled and cleared out. Uh, so say there was say you missed some payments, say you defaulted on a debt, but you ended up paying it off. Those things do roll off of the credit report. I believe it's after seven years, but they just kind of I think of them as slowly fading away, fading out of importance as it as credit reports have started being a lot more focused on the current data. And even with some of the new ways of credit reporting, they're uh, trying to focus on future payments because that's that's really ultimately what we're trying to do, right? We're trying to see in the future, is this person going to pay me back? And it may be true that they had a hard time paying someone back in the past, but people change. People get better. People also get worse. Uh, So that's what they're trying to do. So hopefully after time, that wouldn't impact her, but it may not even impact her report at all. If you want to dispute a claim, make sure you do it in writing and you send that uh, letter to each one of those three reporting agencies so they have a record of it. Gene, you're on the air with us. So go ahead, please. I've had a, a bit of an issue with so-called aliases on my credit report. It uh, stopped me from one uh, 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 tire store place a while back from getting a renewed card. And uh, I, uh, when I actually looked and saw some, I actually saw some of the stuff that was on there. It was like, you know, I'm a junior, so it had like JT for junior, and it had it mixed with my sister's name. It, it had a, a, a kind of a suffix to my name, and I don't want to say it on there, but it's a, a, a few little letters extra on my, and and it puts my middle initial mixed with her name and mixed with my last name, and I'm like, oh God, I mean, uh, was this some kind of desk jockey that just did a bunch of mistakes uh, over the years or something, and uh, it almost messed me up with my mortgage loan. Well, I mean, it, it almost caused an, an issue, but uh, as far as you know, the loan officer asked me, well, Gene, how many aliases do you have? <laughs> Who are you really, Gene? Um, so this is, yeah, yeah so you're, I, you're don't ex- say that too loud. I mean, they might think I'm. <laughs> but no, I, I have it all over my license and everything. What who I am, and I'm like, where's all this coming from? I got credit card uh, offers, which. Um, like my sister's first name and my middle initial and last name, and I still get them. Yes. So like you mentioned, this can come up because somebody has submitted something with with a typo, with an error in your name. It's kind of wild that you're three different typos. (laughs) Yes. And it's kind of like, I mean, it was everybody had a blonde hair day that I mean, within a few years of each other or something. I'm like, what's going on? 
So what this obviously would be to contact what writer, what would you recommend? Yeah. So the way we see this a lot is when people are doing a credit check or an identity check. So he mentioned the issue arose when he was renewing a card. An issue arose when he was applying for a mortgage. No doubt that officer, whoever was doing that approval, was looking at his credit report, was just doing a kind of an automated query. And lots of different options came up. Maybe it it said, did you mean Gene so-and-so or Gene? So and so, um, because it, they probably also plugged in his date of birth and his social security number, which are probably, as long as you type those incorrectly, probably a lot more accurate. So that happen and that happens with people legitimately too when people use do use a middle initial or a middle name sometimes oh at my house or it's a terrible problem when people when people oh. uh, marry and change their name legally they will have multiple names which are associated with their one corporeal form and with their one uh, credit report so these happen for all sorts of legitimate reasons but it sounds like in your case errors typos somebody has put it in wrong and just because I remember back in the mid-80s, and I mean, my first job when I got out of uh, uh, college, uh, well, when I let go of college, anyway, there was uh, a lady said, well, she had pulled up my dad's <laughs> stuff, like, oh. Post office, nineteen sixty-five, and God, I was just Well, I would suggest, Gene, that you go back and pull that free report, your annual credit report dot com, and you're going to have to go over this with a fine tooth comb. And every error, you need to document every error. And then do that written dispute where you write a letter and you list everything. Now, this. Often when people have problems with uh, identity theft or even aliases or anything like this, it is, takes a lot to get it removed and fixed. And if you start to run into problems, you could at some point need to consult with an attorney to get their help to actually get some of this cleaned up. And one other thing, so having multiple names on there, because they can come legitimately, they can just be a typo, that's not a huge issue. I think you should try to get those names corrected. And again, the Consumer Financial Protection Bureau has some great uh, templates and some links to forms and instructions on how to get items corrected with each of the different reporting bureaus. But one of the issues is if someone is reporting under an incorrect name, you need to get that name corrected with them. One of the things we do often when, like you mentioned, opening an account, renewing an account, getting a new uh, credit line is we send in a one in the same letter where somebody shows you know, my name is Gene so-and-so. I have also been known by Gene L so-and-so. I have also been known by my sister's name. And you can say, this is my name. This is the one that should be on the report. You can provide documentation. You can provide your driver's license. And everyone is going to have a different standard for how they, what they want to see in order to prove that you are Gene so-and-so. Uh, maybe your driver's license, uh, maybe... Some, maybe just a utility bill or a bank statement in your name. But 
Having the multiple names, not too much of a problem. It's going to be a real big problem if that's causing other people's, for instance, like you mentioned, your dad's information or your sister's information actually being on your report. Now, if it's really good information, I don't know. You may, maybe you don't want to dispute it. But, of course, it's, it's, it's going to be proper to get that removed. So have your identity documents all in a row. Uh, and also, when you're applying for, like you said, renewing a card, uh, opening a new account, things where they do do a backup, an identity verification and a credit verification, you're going to want to have something to say, hi, I am Gene so-and-so, here's some other names you might find me under. So when you use my date of birth and social security number to, to do a check on me, these are the names you might encounter. Don't worry, they're all the same name. Go ahead, Kevin, you're on the air with us. Yeah, I got a question for you. Uh, I have a credit freeze on my credit report. Is it okay to just let the state froze? I mean, I'm not trying to buy nothing else right now. I have uh, Home Depot, Lowe's, and a John Deere Corporation credit card. So is it okay to let the state froze? Uh, should I just... Yes, this is a good way to protect your identity, to protect any against any problems that could occur on your credit report. So I have a credit refreeze on my uh, credit, and as long as you're not needing a new credit card or you're not going to buy a car with a loan or you're not going to change houses, you don't need a loan for business, then there's no reason for it to be unfrozen. Um, And here's something else you can do, because I've done this before. Mine is frozen, but you can do a temporary unfreeze. So you can go in and and you have to do it on each of those three agencies. Um, Or in some cases, if you go to the bank and you want to just get a loan, they may say, oh, well, we always just access TransUnion. You might just have to unfreeze it on TransUnion. And you typically tell them a date for this is when I want it to be unfrozen and this is when I want you to freeze it again. So a temporary unfreeze is a way to go that gives you that room and that flexibility if something comes up. Because right now you're like – well, I'm not going to access any kind of credit, but something could happen right. and you may need to right. do that. And that's the way you do it. When you freeze that credit, make sure you keep up with all that information. In some cases, there's yes. a pin that you have. Uh, in some cases, it's just a phone number. When I was doing a, a temporary unfreeze recently, I couldn't find my information. So I had to call and go through a process so that they you know, verified I was who I said I was before they would do it, oh, but it was okay. fine. So this is the way oh. to go. Keep it frozen. Protect yourself until you need it. Listen again as Nancy and Ryder answer listener questions. Good morning, Mary. You're on the air, so go ahead. Yes, sir. I have two questions. And if um, does a person need a spouse to sign a spouse's consent to waiver a qualified joint? and survivor annuity for them to get their retirement if they're ready to draw it. And this, and, and the only thing you would give them was this sheet to sign, no information, no knowledge of this at all. And the second question is, can you borrow from an IRA and will you have to pay it back? Um. Uh, so interesting question there. When we see that spousal consent pops up, of course, on retirement plans, uh, you're like your 401k, 403b, 
Generally speaking, uh, sometimes they do. I, I'm not a hundred percent where all of the lines are crossed. Uh, sometimes that is a state by state. Sometimes that is a plan by plan. And and, and the idea is that. Your 401k may have options uh, for withdrawal. For instance, you could annuitize it, and which allow benefits for your spouse. And so some places they view that as if you just withdraw the money, if you roll that over instead of taking it as an annuity, which would include benefits for your spouse, then you are denying your spouse some sort of benefit. Uh, so it is not uncommon that that needs to be signed but again i would check with uh, with your 401k provider they would know if that's something that your plan has they would know that if that's something that does matter for the amount you're taking i don't know that you need to have that signed just to make withdrawals i again that's not something i've dealt with specifically uh, with those plans as far as bar- but you do have that with a pension Yes. So that's, I think that's what she was talking about. And mm-hmm. I would I would say if someone is asking you to sign off on uh, that spousal consent, that's usually part of a bigger package which lists all of those uh, benefits. So there would be a single life benefit. That's the most you can get. There's going to be benefits that show joint survivor, which would include mm-hmm. the spouse. And so if you're the spouse being asked to sign, I would ask to see all of that and know those numbers. Um, the second question you have, can you borrow from IRA? No, you cannot. Um, that's where we see a difference between 401Ks, which are defined contribution plans. Many of them allow for borrowing against that. That goes plan by plan. You cannot do that with an IRA. Well, let me, what, if I can may ask, may I ask one more thing? Yes, sure, ma'am. go ahead. Sure, go ahead. Okay, okay. If they say I'm going to divorce you, will that make my option for this spouse of consent thing uh, not needed? Because as the lady just said, mm-hmm. that this form does say I'm giving up my rights to everything, right. and I won't, I don't, and I didn't know even know about it. So I'm not going. And they refuse to give me any paperwork to read okay. up on, which I ask for repeatedly. If you are still married, officially married, you're going to have to sign that. There's going to have to be a signature. And even if somebody says, well, I'm going to divorce you, if the divorce is not official, if the marriage is not final and terminated, then that signature will still be required. And so if you have somebody threatening divorce, I would just say, Mm -hmm. you know, talk to my attorneys. And I will point out as well, if someone does have something like a large pension benefit, even if they have not, even if they are not taking it yet, or they have a four hundred one k or something, and they are threatening divorce, there are part of divorce settlements where you may receive some of those benefits. So that would be included. And so that you're finding out about that, that's kind of in, if 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 you're looking at a divorce situation, that's kind of in your favor because you are learning a little bit more about the financial situation uh, and may. Make sure in any divorce negotiations or settlement, it does uh, it does include that pension benefit because that is a large for people who have a pension benefit that can be a very large asset of theirs in retirement. It comes as a monthly income that is very big and important to their financial situation. All right, thank you all.
what uh, what do you say are some good habits for successful savers? Well, I'm going to use a word that's not a very popular word, which is discipline, because that's what it's really about. Ew. Um, Discipline saving. And I always like to say, make your saving automatic. Uh, Sign up for that 401k. Put enough in it so it just pinches you a little bit, and you won't even miss it. Um, Also, go ahead and make it automatic for money to go into your savings account. And so it's not sitting there in your checking account where you can spend it. So that's the best thing you can do is to apply some discipline to all of that. And if you're trying to look at, well, how do I get started? And I'm not sure I have enough to save. Yes, you do. But you need to look at what your expenses are. And as you look at those expenses, what are your real needs versus your wants? And what are the things where you go a little crazy on? And can you cut back on some of those things? Certainly, you can't cut back on the rent or the mortgage payments. you got to pay your utilities. you got to get to the grocery store. But if you start to really look at that, and, you know, a budget is also another word we don't like to use very much or a spending plan. I don't necessarily follow a budget regularly, but I like to look at that uh, household budget maybe once a year to see what's where am I really spending too much? Where can I pull back? How can I save more? But once you do that and really carve out your savings first, then you can learn to live on what's left. You know, the, I can't remember exactly where I got this from. A lot of this stuff I get from online, you know, these tips and things that we share on the air. <clears throat> but one of them caught my eye. It's that good savers use cash. And it says that research shows that people spend more money with credit cards versus paying with cash. Ryder, what are your thoughts on why that would be? Mm, well, it, so there is always the hesitation if you have a, like a nice crispy 20 in your pocket. There's the hesitation to break it. You want to keep it nice and crispy and clean and, and whole as long as you can because what are you going to do with all that change? Um, you, you know, if you have listened to the show, you know that Nancy and I are big fans of putting a lot of your spending on credit cards. Uh, but we are definitely not fans of putting more on your credit card than you can actually afford. So what – one of the things is there are a lot of tips and tricks for getting good at saving and building that saving muscle. Nancy mentioned discipline. She mentioned that you know you've got to go ahead and get those things done. That's you're you're preparing your your today's self is preparing for your future self. You're saying I know that my future self doesn't want to make this decision. I'm going to go ahead and make the decision to set aside $100 every month today. I'm going to make that decision today, and I'm never going to have to make it again. I'm hopefully going to raise that that amount I set aside in the future. Um, again, getting into the habit, getting into good habits, lowering your saving. There are a lot of tips and tricks, and whatever works for you. Yes, some for some people that is having a cash, having a cash envelope. This is oh, this is all the money I can spend on eating out this month, and having that clearly marked. Those are great for getting into those habits, for building that saving muscle. Um, but ultimately, you hope to just get good at it. So as Nancy said, you don't you don't have to follow a strict budget for the rest of your life. You'll just get good at spending less than you uh, less than you earn. You'll get good at having all those savings automa- automated and you'll have that strong muscle. And so, yes, you'll need to check on things every now and then, review your spending every month, but you're, you're going to be good at that habit and, and everything is going to work a lot more smoothly. Go ahead, Jerry. You're on the air with us. Uh, thank you. Good morning. Morning. Um, 
my wife and I have a little trouble making our Social Security and SSI uh, last through the month. So my stepson usually sends us a couple of hundred, three hundred dollars a month to help us make it, help us get by. Is that tax deductible for him? No. 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 So that's just he's just giving you money. It's just gifting it, it in at that amount. It doesn't have an impact on his taxes either way. Uh, gifting there is a uh, annual exemption to gifting where he doesn't even have to do any reporting of it. And that number, I believe, this year is seventeen thousand. So as long as he's staying under that, uh, that's that's fine. Um, so at that amount, there's just no impact either way. Above that, there's a potential impact on his future estate, but that's you would get into it. You get a CPA or tax preparer to help him with that. But at that rate, no, he's just that's just giving money to family and friends. Thanks for joining us this morning for the best of episode of Money Talks. You can always email your personal finance questions to money at mpbonline.org. This is MPB Think Radio. This is an MPB Think Radio podcast. To hear previous shows, visit mpbonline.org or download the MPB Public Radio app to listen on your iPhone or Android phone on demand.